You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Is social justice, critical race theory, etc., etc., a primary or a secondary dividing line in American Christianity? Or in Christianity in general, besides just America, if it is true here, it's true across the history of the church, forwards, backwards, for all time. If it's not true here, then it's not true throughout the history of the church, the universal church, Christ's church, Catholic church in the traditional sense, not Roman Catholic, but Christ's universal church. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today is August 20th, 2021. Today we are going to be talking a lot about social justice. This is episode 131 of season 3, 196 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Welcome back for those of you who are regular listeners. For those of you just joining us, I would encourage you to hit the subscribe button. If you like what I have to say here, if it is helpful and encouraging and perhaps sometimes even a little bit cheerful, hit subscribe. You can subscribe at your podcast listening venue of choice. You can subscribe at the com. But without further ado, let's dive right in. I've been in conversation with a friend of mine, a dear friend, who is not as confident what to make of social justice, critical theory, critical race theory, wokeism, in a word. He's not as sure what to do about wokeism in American mainstream evangelicalism today. He's not as sure about these things as I am. I am quite sure what to make of it. But I need to be patient and respectful and kind to others who have not studied these things for as long as I have in the same depth that I have. I have been studying political science on my own privately as an amateur for six or seven years. If this were a college degree program, I would have my master's and I'd be working on my PhD. So I know a thing or two. I have built my own curriculum because that's how I roll. And I am studying Machiavelli and Alinsky. I'm reading history. I'm reading biographies. I'm reading philosophy. I'm reading theology. I'm staying abreast of what's being said in mainstream evangelical publications, what's being communicated in the news. What does God's word say about it though? And that's where all sorts of potential for conflict comes up. When you park yourself at the confluence of theology and politics, you will take fire from 
both sides, specialists in both fields. The specialists in theology will criticize you for bringing politics into this. Whether or not you're actually the one who brought politics into it, you might just be recognizing politics where the specialists in theology don't as readily. The folks who are specialists in political science very often have embraced the idea of secularism, of secular humanism, of multiculturalism. They've embraced the idea that there should be and must be a very high, thick, impenetrable wall of separation between church and state. And so once you start bringing God and Jesus and the Bible into this, you are going to get criticism from them if they give you the time of day. Odds are high that they're just not going to listen to you at all. They're going to dismiss you out of hand as a kook and as a crazy person for now. But there will come a day when we remember that once upon a time, we factored God's character, God's judgment, God's plans and purposes and promises into our policy decisions. The woke crowd is absolutely right that the Bible has a lot to say about justice. God has a lot to say about justice, more to the point. The Bible is not this inanimate thing. It's not this living document like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. It's not some malleable piece of clay that they get to shape and mold into their own likeness to suit their preferences, like an idol. God said these things, and that God who said these things is not dead, whatever you might have heard from Nietzsche. The God who spoke about justice and mercy and walking humbly with our God in Micah 6.8 is not dead. So we do have to reckon with what the Bible says about justice. And yet we also have to reckon with what God says about perverting justice. Those two go hand in hand. You cannot look at God's calls to doing justice, his insistence on doing justice, on having equal weights and measures, because he hates unequal weights and measures designed to defraud others. You cannot look at what God says about partiality and the sin of judging between two parties in a lawsuit or in a dispute with partiality without taking seriously the gravity of perversions of justice in God's mind. So, the woke crowd is right, in a sense, as far as they go. Justice is critically important, and it would be very foolish for us to take all of these calls for social justice and throw them out, and with them throw out any and all calls for justice of any kind. There is such a thing as God's justice, biblical justice, or as it used to be known, justice. Hundreds of years ago, you might have had what they call the king's justice, but we are pursuing the righteousness of God, the righteousness that comes from God, 
being right with God. Not by our own works are we saved. We're saved by grace through faith. And yet we are not saved into a life of sinning that grace might abound all the more. We are saved into a life which is to be presented to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is our spiritual act of worship. And so what does that mean? How then should we live? Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the days, for the days are evil. Another thing to factor in here with regards to whether social justice, critical theory, wokeism is a primary or a secondary issue in Christianity is what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And we see here that unity is God's will. That's his desire. That's his command. That's his intention. That is what God wants for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wants us knit together like a body. And so some of the folks, and I think my friend, who is not sure what to make of this woke business just yet, I think he is in this camp. Some of us are very, very concerned that in pursuing the truth and purity and opposing false teaching in the church, we don't forget the need for unity gentleness, love, grace, patience, bearing when, bearing with one another. We don't forget the need for these things 
And that's good, right? Good on him. If you're listening, brother, good on you. Because that's right. That's rightful, appropriate. All scriptures got breathed, as we talked about in the last podcast episode from yesterday. But we can't elevate that desire for unity to the exclusion of all other concerns because there is more than just a requirement of unity. The requirement of unity is contingent on whether we are in fact in Christ. Should we be united with people who profess to be Christians and yet do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Should we be united with people who claim to be Christians and yet call good evil and evil good. God forbid. So we have to, at a certain point, put to the side our earnest desire for unity when it becomes clear that this is not a situation in which we can have unity or should have unity. I think we agree on that. And so I'll move on. I want you to think about something with regards to patience and gentleness and kindness and bearing one another's burdens and bearing with one another. There's also a need to be clear. Consider 1 Corinthians 14, and this might seem like an odd passage, but bear with me and I'll explain. Starting in verse 6, going to verse 12. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech, that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now this specifically in context, is talking about distinguishing between different spiritual gifts. And if you know the context of the church in Corinth, you know that the church in Corinth desired spiritual gifts, but they were not desiring and pursuing and operating with the spiritual gifts in an orderly way. And Paul patiently, but also clearly, and also thoroughly, explains the concern that he has that speaking in tongues and prophecy are not being tempered with genuine love for God and a genuine love for one another. That there is a conceitedness, there is a selfish ambition, there is a competitiveness to the way that the spiritual gifts are being talked about, thought about, acted out. And yet, notice what he puts here. 
In verse 8, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? That is to say, if we're not clear, then how is it that anybody is going to benefit from what we're saying? If I am overly nuanced in expressing concern about wokeism in the church, if I'm overly nuanced, excessively conciliatory, is it possible that I do any benefit, any good to the people who hear me? Is it possible to be too gentle? Is it possible to be too gracious, to be too patient? Slow to anger does not mean that we never get angry. In your anger do not sin does not mean that getting angry to begin with is a sin. Unity and a desire to bear with one another in gentleness and respect and patience and love for God's sake, for Christ's name, that does not mean that we boil everything down to the point that it has no form or substance. Beyond that, rather than me saying and arguing to you and trying to prove to you that social justice, critical theory, critical race theory, progressivism, wokeism is a primary issue or a secondary issue or a tertiary issue or a quaternary issue or an issue whatsoever that deserves our attention. I want to ask you how the big Eva mainstream evangelical leadership who is gone woke talks about wokeism. Are they presenting this as just another valid way to interpret God's word and our calling? Are they presenting this as just another viable option among many? See, my concern is that, as I said before in this episode, some of us have not been following these things very closely because on the political front, we were studying political science in a vacuum, apart from God, apart from the law of God, trying to keep religion out of it because we are a pluralistic postmodern society. And that's what's expected. And for others of us who made the gospel and theology and winning souls for Christ and serving in the church and having that unity of mind that we're called to, we are called to in the scriptures. Others of us who have made that so central have tried to, as much as possible, stay out of political matters. They look at studying political philosophy, listening to what's being claimed, what's being argued, where are these ideas coming from, where are they going, have these ideas been tried, are they true? They look at that as getting entangled in civilian affairs. Armed to the tooth, me and all my troops, no time for a truce, there's only time for truth, no room for fear or regular cares, steer clear of civilian affairs. I'm a soldier, boy, I told you. I hold the scriptures like you hold chips on your shoulder. Biblical clips better load up. 
The snare and the drums go snap, the lyrical tongue cocks back, the air in my lungs flows, and that's enough to spark a revolution. Man, listen, my music is ammunition. I march to the tune of a man smitten, was slain as a lamb, yet he stands risen, just as it was written. My orders are to cross borders, living waters in my canteen, as my camp screams for the God we love, even though we can't see him. My passions down to the name brands on my fashions have to pass, and I only live off what my captain rations. Welcome to the front lines, streets and corners. The chief warned us the beef is tremendous when you lock teeth in the trenches. There's a war going on outside, and it's real. Flesh versus spirit. I don't flex to appeal. Use the text to reveal what comes next. If you reject, then I seal conversation with praying and step, because what I feel is really not the deal. The issue is your soul. As a soldier, I must remain sober and in control. I gotta stay focused like a scope does, and hope what I wrote does clear the smoke up. Hey, y'all, I'm never a wall. I wouldn't dare stop work to start dealing in civilian affairs. Ever since I've been sworn in, born in, put through boot camp, it's on. Ain't got no time for no nuisance. It's three squares a day, eat, teach, study, pray, little play. Because what soldier got time for blase? Especially when Yahweh is bringing D-Day with M16 rocket launcher or AK. Because this ain't Vietnam. The enemy's more vicious than the Viet Cong who think delicious of the embalmed. Who die outside of service deserters, conscientious perverters. We stand as alerters, hoping this is making you nervous. Well, if you ain't a procrastinator, fight Satan's invaders. Get your fist in the air and march to this cadence. Had to cram ten jams in a week, so I'm weak, but I'm planting my feet. Planted to speak of our commander-in-chief. He's a lamb and a beast, king and god-man of the streets. Standard of peace, but not a man that is weak. He's glorious, infinity and O. He's victorious. El Gabor is a warrior, and he orders us. Not to trust in swords and stuff, or store up and hoard stuff that is sure to rust. Don't get it twisted, he'll get a misfit when others wouldn't risk it. Teach him diplomatics like a good version of Dipset. Bury him in Christ till his everyday life is sifted. Missions stick with the reason we got enlisted. That's from track one on the Cross Movement album. Civilian Affairs is the name of the track. The Cross Movement album higher definition i'd recommend it it's a good album but that's where i think my friend is coming from we don't get political because we're busy we're busy and those are civilian affairs and yet we have folks woke folk with very big microphones with very big audiences with preaching and teaching and church planting and pastoral training ministries who are saying you have to embrace this woke business in order to really truly be embraced as a brother. If you reject it, if you kick against it, if you oppose it, if you question it, like Kevin DeYoung here a month and some change ago, if you kick against it, and start questioning these calls for reparations. Is that really rightly dividing the word of truth? Is that really handling the scriptures faithfully? Are you really studying to show yourself an approved workman that need not be ashamed? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Or do you need reproof, correction, training, instruction under righteousness? Someone like Kevin DeYoung starts looking at these calls for woke policy to be enacted for political activism on the part of Christians, 
pastors, lay people, and he's engaging with the truth claims. And what is it that he gets accused of at thefrontporch.org by Quan and Thompson? He gets accused of undertaking a cultural project, which is white supremacy and using white-centered arguments. His interpretation of the Bible is white supremacist. He doesn't know it. He's not trying to be white supremacist. He just is because anything we don't like is white supremacy. We're not talking about a casual conversation where somebody's had maybe one too many beers and this is private company. They'll understand where you're coming from. We're talking about publishing this for the whole of Christianity in America to read and to see and to digest. We're talking about publishing this, shouting it from the rooftops. This is for the ages. This is for posterity. Accusing Kevin DeYoung when he criticizes their book on reparations of white supremacy. And that's a warning to everybody else. If you start questioning, even just start questioning and do it winsomely, you start questioning this woke business, you're a white supremacist. You're a racist. Now, if you get really aggressive with it, really direct with it, you get a little less kinder, gentler, a little less winsome than Kevin DeYoung did, then boy, howdy. If that's how they treated him when he was being as kind and gracious as he was, do they think this is a primary issue or a secondary issue or a tertiary issue? Do they think this is no issue at all? No, they don't. These are pastors. These are mainstream bestseller authors. These are leaders in Christianity today who are making these claims. Now, what I don't want to do next is read these quotes I'm about to read for you and imply, much less outright state, that these quotes represent everybody who's in the woke camp and exactly what they think and exactly how they feel. But my introduction to this woke church business was Tim Keller, pastor in New York, longtime pastor, co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. And I read his book. I didn't just listen to a 30-second soundbite taken out of context. I listened to his entire sermon four years ago on social justice being biblical justice. The two are the same. Biblical justice is social justice. Social justice is biblical justice. He goes through his Bible, and every time he sees the word justice, he writes social in the margins to remind himself that this is social justice, social justice, social justice. Now, to his audience, he doesn't unpack the history of the term. He doesn't unpack where that comes from. He didn't just one day get a wild-haired notion from reading a concordance from browsing Logos, Bible software, that in the Hebrew, this is actually translated social justice. No, that term, social justice, comes from political philosophers in the Marxist vein. It does. That's not conjecture. That's not hyperbole. That's not critical theory. And by extension, critical race theory. That's not a phrase I coined. 
you coined. That's not a phrase that Tim Keller coined. But Tim Keller has been able to give this credibility by co-founding the Gospel Coalition and by being charming and winsome. I wonder to myself whether he isn't part of why a lot of these other woke pastors have gone woke because Tim Keller was somebody they looked up to, somebody with a big microphone, somebody you don't cross if you want to remain relevant. And we do need to have unity of mind as brothers in Christ. And so, well, I guess he sees the high ground first. So <laughs> everybody unify on Tim Keller. huh? How about, how about this? Here's a crazy idea. Why is it that the calls for unity are rarely to never towards the woke crowd saying, let's have unity over here. Let's have unity over here on the theologically conservative, socially conservative, politically conservative, fiscally conservative side of things. You guys unify over here. No? Why does it always work the other direction? Why is it always that the conservatives are supposed to unify over with the progressives and go that direction because the progressives are more energetic, because they're more threatening, because they're more intimidating, because they want it more? When I say conservative, I don't mean the big, hairy, audacious goal is to get Republicans to control every inch of political power in this country. What I mean is the very opposite attitudes which Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine communicated regarding the French Revolution and regarding political philosophy hundreds of years ago. I read Reflections on the Revolution in France by Edmund Burke. I read the whole book. It's great. It's fantastic. I read On the Rights of Man by Thomas Paine. Not a fan. Because Thomas Paine, a godless anti-religion, anti-Christian, whatever he said to make do, to get along, read Age of Reason. He dismisses everything supernatural in the Bible as superstition. And his political philosophy is that every generation has the right to revolution, has the right to reinvent the wheel afresh, and that it is unfair for previous generations to have any claim on our direction. They're dead. They're gone. This is our moment. This is our time. Now, Edmund Burke points out the silliness, for lack of a better way to put it, of Thomas Paine saying that each generation has the right to revolution. Well, <laughs> Generations are not these neat and tidy things where as soon as a new generation comes into existence, all the previous generations just poof, right? This little baby growing in my wife's womb is the next generation. But when this next generation is born or this member of the next generation is born come January, God willing, my wife and I will still be alive, God willing. Her father will still be alive, God willing. My father will still be alive, God willing. My older children 
My oldest son will be 14 going on 15. God willing. God willing, we live and do this or that. But Edmund Burke points out the silliness of Thomas Paine saying each successive generation has the right to revolution, has the right to decide for itself what rules and norms are going to govern society. That's silly. The previous generation is still here, and they have to make way because you young whippersnappers decided you don't like that. You don't like vegetables at dinner. You don't like bedtimes. You don't like brushing your teeth. New rules. New sheriff in town. Whoever's the youngest gets to make the rules. Well, that's stupid. That is just plain stupid. It's been tried. It's been tried for hundreds of years now. It's satanic. Is there an element of each generation getting a chance to start fresh? particularly if previous generations rejected God and turned away from God and were dead in their sins and they're under judgment and unrepentant. Yeah, but that's different. That's not what Thomas Paine is talking about. That's not what the progressive liberal theology crowd is talking about. That's not what the woke church is talking about. In fact, they have all the worst parts of Thomas Paine's ideology coupled with a repudiation once and for all on the statute of limitations. Your ancestors were white. You were born white. You will always be guilty, you and all of your descendants, unless you intermarry with some people of color, and then maybe your kids have a shot at breaking away from this original sin of racism, but by virtue of you being white. You're part of the problem, David Platt says. Is that a primary issue or is that a secondary issue? Is that a tertiary issue that he gets up at a preaching and teaching conference and on behalf of all of us says we're all guilty just by virtue of being white? Is that a primary issue, a secondary issue, a tertiary issue? If you're saying this is a sin issue, we either have to repent of it or you need to repent of calling it a sin issue because you're putting words in God's mouth. You're adding to the scriptures. Is this a sin issue or is it not a sin issue? Because it sounds like you're saying it's a sin issue. So it sounds like you are claiming this is a primary issue. I'm going to read some quotes by Tim Keller. And I want you to listen for something. Listen for whether wokeism, social justice, critical theory is a primary or secondary issue to Tim Keller. And when you hear these others who have gone woke, Paul David Tripp, David Platt, and they have the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. When you hear these others who have gone woke, listen for this. Do they think that social justice and critical theory and wokeism is a primary or a secondary or a tertiary issue? Tim Keller, Generous Justice, pages 95 to 97, Penguin Publishing Group, Kindle Edition. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 2, 14, 17. The contradiction is only apparent. While a sinner can get into relationship with God by only faith, Paul, the ultimate proof that you have saving faith is the changed life that true faith inevitably produces, James 
To bring Paul's and James' teaching together, we can say we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. True faith will always produce a changed life. However, James does not merely say that true faith will change one's life in general. He goes on to describe the works that he says always accompany a living, justifying faith. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2, 15 to 16. If you look at someone without adequate resources and do nothing about it, James teaches your faith is dead. It is not really saving faith. So what are the works he's talking about? He is saying that a life poured out in deeds of service to the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true, justifying gospel faith. Grace makes you just. If you are not just, you've not truly been justified by faith. Justification is the doctrine that God has not given us our just deserts, why then would the doctrine and experience of justification lead a person to become more involved in doing justice? Moving on, page 101 from the same book by the same author, Generous Justice by Tim Keller. Here we see why later James can say that concern for the poor and generous sharing of wealth are the inevitable signs of someone who has understood the gospel of grace. The world makes social class into bottom line identities. You are your social status and bank account. That is the basis for your self-regard. But in the gospel, these things are demoted and made peripheral. Someone who does not show any signs of at least gradual identity transformation in this manner does not give evidence of having really grasped the gospel. Thus, James can say that faith without respect, love, and practical concern for the poor is dead. It's not justifying gospel faith. Now, I'll include a note from my cousin Micah Hirschberger. He's the one that sent me these quotes from Generous Justice Kindle Edition. I listened to it on Audible. I didn't buy the Kindle Edition, so I'm not as able to pull these quotes like he is, as he is. Micah's comment here is, Keller is crafty. He avoids overtly saying the work in faith without works is dead is social justice, but that is exactly what he is saying. He couches it in different terms, i.e. giving to the poor, but in context he is referring to the poor, not as you and I would refer to them, but rather as the oppressed minority. Here's another quote from pages 35 to 36, Generous Justice by Tim Keller. In our own country, the weak educational system that society provides for inner city youth sets them up for failure. But when we add personal wrongdoing and crime to the larger forces of exclusion and oppression, we have a potent mixture that locks people into poverty. Micah's quote of that is followed by his comment, this is a key quote because here he links the biblical concept of the poor to the Marxist concept of systemically oppressed. Keller's vision, therefore, of taking care of the poor is to address systemic issues of inequality. And presto, you have social justice. That's right. That's absolutely right. And so you see here, and you can see it if you watch the Paul David Tripp staircase 
video from July 14th, I believe it was, of 2020. It's on his YouTube channel. You can see from Trip, from Platt, from Keller, an elevating of social justice, critical theory, critical race theory, wokeism to a place of primary importance. You might not even be a Christian if you disagree with them on these things. Now, if that's how they feel, does that not say something about how low they regard God's word? They've either been deceived and had their appraisal of God's word shift in the wrong direction, or they no longer think that the actual primary issues are the primary issues. In order to raise up wokeism to a primary status, you have to bring down the primacy of the gospel message. And for practical purposes, is it feasible to have a unity of mind with pastors and Christians who are insisting that this is a primary issue and if you disagree with me, you're perpetuating white supremacy. If you challenge me, question me, rebut, critique any of my claims, you're just doing the work of white supremacy, the cultural project, as Quan and Thompson say, of white supremacy. Does it work? Is it feasible to have those men embraced? Unless, of course, we're just all going to agree with them. And can we? And where does that go? Where, where do we end up if we all agree with them? And is that true? And is that good? And is that right? And is that what God wants? Is that rightly handing, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth? Is that studying to show ourselves approved workmen? Or is that the fear of man laying a snare? More on this to come, I'm sure. By God's grace, we will endure. We will overcome. But I know my answer, and my answer is very clear. If these men say this is a primary issue, and you may not be a Christian if you disagree with us about critical theory, critical race theory, systemic racism, wokeism, all right then, the Lord rebuke you. That's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.